Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 26th, 2023, the only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel demands the resignation of the U.N. Secretary General over Gaza remarks. Mike Johnson is elected House Speaker after a historic impasse. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warns Iran not to attack U.S. troops. China will replace a defense minister not seen in two months. Joe Biden hosts Australian Prime Minister Albanese at the White House. A Russian anti-war activist dies in a reported fall. Spain's socialists reach a coalition deal with the far left. Texas Attorney General sues the Biden administration for cutting razor wire. The National Hockey League drops its ban on colored tape to express social issues. And 33 U.S. states are suing Meta over its app's alleged impact on kids' mental health. In our top story, Israel demands the resignation of a U.N. chief amid a row over Palestine remarks. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. Israeli officials demanded the resignation of U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres following remarks the U.N. chief made at a U.N. Security Council meeting on Tuesday. Guterres said Israel's bombardment and blockade of the territory amounted to the collective punishment of the Palestinian people and violated international law. This came on a day when 700 people were reportedly killed in Israel's bombing of Gaza and amid reports that Gaza's hospitals have begun to shut down due to lack of fuel. Guterres condemned the Hamas attacks on October 7th, but said they did not happen in a vacuum, claiming the Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. He added, however, that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. In response to the remarks, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen canceled a meeting with Guterres. Israeli opposition leader Benny Gantz, a member of the wartime unity government in Israel, labeled the UN chief a, quote, terror apologist. Galad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the UN, described the comments as shocking and called on Guterres to resign. He said those who showed understanding for what Hamas did to Israeli civilians were unfit to lead the UN. Erdogan took his comments further on Wednesday, telling domestic radio that as a result of Guterres' remarks, Israel will refuse to issue visas to U.N. representatives. He said, quote, we have already refused a visa for Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs Martin Griffiths. The time has come to teach them a lesson. Meanwhile, Israel's bombardment of Gaza continued overnight into Wednesday. The Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, said strikes killed a key Hamas commander. Taysir Mubashir of the North Khan Yunus Battalion. In the meantime, health authorities in Gaza said Wednesday that 756 people were killed in overnight attacks, taking the total of those killed to in excess of 6,500 since Israel started its aerial campaign. Eric, thank you for the facts of that story and for the update on the situation in the Middle East. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Israeli narrative provided by the Times of Israel. Guterres's comments are shocking and unacceptable. Those who show sympathy for those who committed a campaign of terror and mass murder against Israeli civilians are unfit to lead the UN. Guterres should resign immediately. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Guardian. 
Guterres's comments came after Israeli airstrikes killed another 700 civilians and as eight officials continued to warn of a humanitarian cataclysm. He is right to say that what Israel is doing to Gaza is a collective punishment for Palestinians as a whole. This is a severe violation of international law, and Guterres should not have to vacate his post. And occasionally we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They're going to chime in on this story and say that there's a 31% chance that Israel will launch a large-scale ground offensive into Gaza before November 1st of 2023. It is such a tough subject you can't say one thing or another without somebody hating the thing that you said. It, it seems like there's always, you know, obviously it goes without saying there's always war going on in that area. But it's become how are we going to manage this war? Because it's not going away. It's almost like there's a, there's a whole new industry out there called war management. And they hire these companies to come manage the war. Well, this has been an extended war with its ups and downs for decades. What upsets me, though, is that when people do try to say something and they try and say it as fair and balanced way as they think they can, they get beat down. So it almost makes people not want to say anything, which is the wrong thing to do. So I applaud anyone who tries to say something with some sort of understanding for both sides. Man, I tell you what, I think you've got a handle on this thing, Adam. I think you should get an angel investor and start a new company and, and, and create a war management company. I did get a bunch of people to invest in angels, but uh, I, I couldn't get the angels to show up. That was the problem. <laughs> so it's going to be hard to get people to trust me to... to oh my gosh, you okay? <laughs> oh, it's so funny, Adam. Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson is elected House Speaker. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Daily Wire, Associated Press, Fox News, Axios, and Washington Examiner. Representative Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, was elected as the 56th House Speaker on Wednesday with the unanimous support of House Republicans, the first show of unity from the GOP since the ouster of Kevin McCarthy three weeks ago. Johnson defeated minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat from New York, in the first House floor ballot held on the day, 220 to 209, securing the simple majority threshold required to win the gavel after three Republican nominees, Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, and Majority Whip Tom Emmer failed to do so. Johnson was elected on Tuesday as Emmer dropped out of the Speaker's race quickly after receiving the nomination amid resistance from several conservatives. On Wednesday, former President Donald Trump claimed that Johnson would be a fantastic Speaker. A Trump ally, Johnson defended the former president during the Democrat-led House impeachment hearings and filed an amicus brief to support Texas litigation to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. At the time, he was the Republican Study Committee chairman. The relatively little-known four-state social conservative has been a member of the House Judiciary Committee and Select Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. Last year, he was unanimously re-elected for a second term as vice chair of the House Republican Conference. Before the vote on the floor, Johnson laid out his policy priorities, including a vote on a resolution to condemn Hamas, and an expedited appropriation schedule to avoid a government shutdown as federal funding is set to run out in three weeks. Adam, thanks for laying out those facts. As expected, we have opposing spins coming from both Republican and Democratic sides. We'll start with the Republican narrative coming from Newsmax. 
A hardworking, principled conservative who is admired across the Republican Party, Mike Johnson will certainly do a great job for the nation as House Speaker, as he has already done on the Judiciary Committee and on the House Republican Conference. His leadership and honesty will help get the country back on track for the benefit of American families. And that's going to be countered with a Democratic narrative. The newly elected Speaker Johnson is a leading election denier who, as chairman of the House Republican Conference, played a key role in congressional efforts to subvert the 2020 presidential election, as well as one of the most hardline conservatives in the House. That the GOP has only been able to rally around such a figure is worrisome, yet not surprising. And the nerds from Metaculus give us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2024. Blinken warns Iran against attacks on U.S. troops. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Iran International, CNN, Rudaw, and Israel National News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has warned that while Washington doesn't seek conflict with Iran, It will not hesitate to respond in the event of attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East. Addressing the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday, Blinken warned Tehran that the U.S. would defend itself swiftly and decisively should Iran or its proxies attack U.S. personnel anywhere. Blinken also called on the U.N. to hold Iran accountable should Tehran or Iranian-backed forces expand the Israel-Hamas conflict and destabilize the region. Blinken's remarks come as the Pentagon accused pro-Iranian armed groups of carrying out at least 13 attacks on U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq and Syria since October 17th. In response, Iran's U.N. Ambassador Amir Saeed Iravani blamed the U.S. for exacerbating the conflict, quote, by overtly aligning itself with the aggressor at the expense of the innocent Palestinian population. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. Our pro-Iranian narrative is provided by Press TV. Blinken's address to the U.N. Security Council was a blatant attempt to put the blame for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on Iran. In reality, it's the U.S. that continues to fuel the war by openly siding with the Israeli regime in its campaign of collective punishment against the people of Gaza. Should the war expand regionally due to U.S. complicity in Israel's atrocities, the international community will know who is responsible. Tehran will continue to stand with the Palestinians. Financial Times gives us an anti-Iran narrative. Blinken has rightly warned Tehran against further attacks by its proxies on U.S. military personnel. While the Iranian regime avoids direct military confrontation with the U.S. or Israel, it relies on its proxies to carry out attacks on U.S. troops. These actions aim to further expand Tehran's regional clout at the expense of U.S. influence. However, Iran is mistaken if it thinks that Washington will stand idly by as it continues to facilitate attacks by its proxies on U.S. troops. And the nerds think that there's a 39% chance that before 2024, the U.S. government will state that Iran likely helped Hamas plan the October 7th attack on Israel. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. China will replace its defense minister who has not been seen in two months. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, New York Times, CBS, and Washington Post. It has been announced that China's defense minister, General Li Shengfu, will be replaced. Li was appointed by President Xi Jinping in March, but has not been seen in public since he addressed the China-Africa Peace and Security Forum in Beijing on August 29th. 
Li's ousting, which was revealed at the end of a meeting of the Standing Committee of China's National People's Congress, followed the dismissal of Foreign Minister Quinn Gang in July, who was relieved amid speculation about a potentially compromising affair during his time as a U.S. ambassador. While the removal of both Li and Quinn likely marks an end of their political careers, it is not yet known whether they will face prosecution or other legal action. Li is also facing sanctions related to his overseeing of weapon purchases from Russia that bar him from entering the country. President Xi, who signed the executive order revoking Li's position, has ambitions to turn China's military into a, quote, world-class force by 2049. He has overseen several reshuffles since taking over in 2012, including within the rocket force, which maintains Beijing's expanding nuclear arsenal. Andrew Yang, a former Taiwanese defense minister turned scholar of the Chinese military, has claimed that the dismissal of Li was designed to, quote, send a message that Xi is strictly in control. Li's departure comes just before China's annual Xiangsheng Forum, a gathering of Chinese and foreign military experts and officials. Li had notably refused to speak with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Regional Security Forum in Singapore in June. Thanks, Adam, for those facts. Our first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from Atlantic Council. Though it's not uncommon for officials to be removed for corruption, particularly from within the capital-intensive rocket force, President Xi's latest dismissals point less to a crackdown on corruption and more to a series of miscalculated appointments. Xi spent his first seven years in control consolidating power, and it looks like he is still prioritizing personal authority over displaying military strength toward the U.S. The CCP will continue to be led by Xi for the foreseeable future, but it won't be declaring war anytime soon. And Global Times is going to follow that up with a pro-China narrative. Minister Li's decorated military career is, unfortunately, the reason for his dismissal. Having risen the ranks from director of China's main satellite launch sites in Zicheng to head of the Equipment Development Department of the Central Military Commission before becoming defense minister, he was eventually placed under sanctions by then-U.S. President Donald Trump due to his involvement in the development program. This caused trouble for the CCP, which is why it was necessary to relieve him of his duties. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 7% chance that there will be active warfare between the United States and China before 2027. President Biden meets with Australia's Albanese. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Independent, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, and Voice of America. U.S. President Joe Biden welcomed Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to the White House on Wednesday with nearly 4,000 spectators present for the official arrival ceremony. The state visit, the fourth since Biden became president, involved a pavilion dinner on the South Lawn of the White House, as well as a press conference in the Rose Garden. According to the two leaders, Washington and Canberra are seeking to build underwater infrastructure between Australia, French Polynesia, and Fiji to improve the region's internet connectivity, with the goal of expanding it to other nations later down the line. Other plans reportedly include agreements to cooperate in a range of areas, including space, artificial intelligence, and climate change. The U.S., Australia, and the U.K. announced a trilateral accord titled AUKUS in September 2021, an agreement that is generally said to address China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. 
The two nations are also reportedly set to discuss details of the deal, which would see Australia provided with nuclear-powered submarines for the first time. The visit also comes as Albany's recently cemented plans to meet with China's Xi Jinping in November, and as China's top diplomat is scheduled to arrive in Washington later this week. Thank you, Eric. CNN's going to start off with a pro-establishment narrative. The attempt by Biden to strengthen his ties in the Pacific has certainly been undermined by conflict in the Middle East, as well as troubles within domestic congressional politics. However, with the need to contain the reach of China's influence always a priority, the hosting of a state dinner for Australia and Albanese highlights the extremely delicate and complicated list of foreign policy matters that the Biden administration continues to navigate through. The establishment critical narrative comes from foreign policy. At the top of Biden's agenda with Albanese must be the revitalization of AUKUS. So far, despite positive rhetoric, the goals outlined in the deal have stalled. As the U.S. drags its feet over export control provisions that currently prohibit nuclear submarines from being sold to Australia, a key agreement between the two countries two years ago. The purpose of AUKUS is to deter China's growing hegemony, a mission that is in danger of failing unless Albanese and Biden get their act together. And there's also a pro-China narrative spin with this story that's provided by Global Times. While the AUKUS allies pretend that their military buildup is about peace and stability, in reality, this deal sets off a destabilizing and unnecessary arms race that will further provoke China. This unjustifiable move reflects a Cold War and colonial mindset in which the Anglophone powers believe they have a natural right to dominate the region. By investing hundreds of billions, Australia is not only making itself an agent of U.S. hegemonic interests, but also risks gambling away its own political and economic future. Turning our attention to news out of Russia, where an anti-war activist has died following a, quote, fall. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, MSN, Ukranska Pravda, Reuters, Independent, and RT. Russian anti-war activist Olga Nazarenko has died in hospital two weeks after suffering a fall from a height, although the incident has been described as an accident, some online alleged that her opponents were responsible for her death. Despite repeatedly being detained by authorities, Nazarensko continued carrying out weekly protests that caused her to lose her position as an associate professor. She also appeared in a number of media reports and videos opposing the Kremlin. The news came as the Ukrainian Air Force announced air raid warnings overnight on Monday due to the threat of Russians using assault UAVs in Cherkasy, Kirovorod, Kamalinsky, Mikolaev, and Venetia Oblasts. It also warned of the use of ballistic missiles on the Donetsk, Dnipropetrovsk, Kharkiv, Kherson, Poltava, and Zaporizhia oblasts. Russian forces have reportedly ramped up attacks in the southern Kherson region in the Eastern Front, seeking to cut off the supply route to Donetsk Adivka in advance on Kharkiv's Kupiansk. The gateway to the city of Donetsk, Avdivka, has reportedly contributed to a 90% spike in Russian casualties in the war, estimated at 150,000 to 190,000 since February 2022, as Moscow pushes more soldiers to the front line. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ordered his military to take at least 500 meters of territory every day from Russia to improve their position in Kyiv's counteroffensive. To date, a four-month effort that Russian President Vladimir Putin 
claims has killed over 90,000 Ukrainian troops. Adam, thank you for those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from the Wall Street Journal. Russia's failed assault on Advitvka shows how hard it is for Russian forces to shift the front line. Though Putin wants to throw his reserves into costly operations around Ukraine's eastern cities, Moscow will suffer heavy losses as entrenched Ukrainian forces continue to hold back the Russian advance. And there's a pro-Russia narrative provided by RT. The Ukrainian counteroffensive was doomed to fail from the start. It's clear Kyiv is bound to lose the war as Ukrainian troops have suffered enormous casualties. With an air offensive, Russia will exert more pressure on Kyiv, which explains why the West is now rushing more weapons to the battlefield. And the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict by December 2025. Spain's socialists reach a coalition deal with the far left. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Guardian, and France 24. A day after Socialist Party leader and Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez met far-left Sumar Party chief and acting Labor Minister Yolanda Diaz, the two parties announced they had reached a governing deal for a four-year legislative term on Tuesday. In a joint statement, the partners said their coalition government will focus on improving Spain through, quote, quality employment, developing policies based on social and climate justice while broadening rights, feminist conquests, and freedoms. The agreement includes commitment to the implementation of policies to expand a windfall tax for banks and energy firms, as well as reducing the official work week to 37.5 hours from the current 40 without any reduction in pay. Spain's Conservative People's Party had narrowly beaten Sanchez's Socialist Party in July's inconclusive national election, but failed to create a majority coalition to form a new government. While this deal is a key step towards reinstating Sanchez for another term, he still doesn't have the necessary support to pass a confidence vote in the lower house of parliament. Sanchez needs the backing of regional parties, including Catalan separatists, JXCAT, and ERC. He has until November 27th to secure a majority, or Spain will hold new elections on January 14th, 2024. Eric, our spins are going to start with a left narrative provided by Jacobin. Spain's left is taking the necessary steps to form a strong government and prevent the far right from taking over the country. The Socialist Party was on its deathbed following July's election, but has seen a resurgence after the People's Party couldn't form a majority. With the help of the progressive Sumar Party, Sanchez's socialists can retake power and remake the state's democratic institutions. The European Conservative gives us a right narrative. Spain's acting government is trying to cling onto power by pledging to completely transform the country's laws and undermine Spanish sovereignty. The socialists care about nothing except their own power and are willing to bend the knee to traitors and secessionists to get votes. Sanchez should think about more than himself when trying to form a government. And the nerds think that there's a 41% chance that Spain will announce a snap general election before March of 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Turning our attention to U.S. immigration news, the state of Texas is suing the Biden administration over razor wire cutting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Hill, National Review, Associated Press, Fox News, and CNN. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton 
is suing the Biden administration in an effort to stop federal agents from cutting the state's concertina razor wire that acts as a barrier at the Rio Grande on the U.S.-Mexico border. The lawsuit alleges that the Biden administration is undermining Texas's effort to enforce its own border security. In a news release, the Republican Attorney General stated that Texas has the sovereign right to construct border barriers to prevent the entry of illegal aliens. The suit was filed Tuesday in the Western District of Texas and comes amid a battle over border security measures between Texas and the White House. Last month, Border Patrol agents began removing parts of the wire fence Texas has implemented under Governor Greg Abbott's 2021 Operation Lone Star, an initiative aimed at curtailing illegal migration. U.S. Department of Homeland Security declined to comment on the lawsuit, but migrant activists claim the razor wire has injured migrants who attempted to enter the U.S. illegally at the Rio Grande. The barriers in Brownsville and Eagle Pass drew criticism for causing wounds. Federal agents have reportedly cut through the wire to respond to medical emergencies, and one Texas official in Eagle Pass claimed that officers may need to open the wire in case of emergency. However, Paxton says that the Biden administration is preemptively cutting the wire without cause and helping migrants enter Texas illegally. This dispute after Biden allowed the Title 42 migration restriction to expire in May, resulting in an uptick of apprehensions, Texas has built floating barriers to stop more than 200,000 migrants from entering the state each month. But the DOJ sued the state and asked for their removal. The Fifth Circuit Court will allow them to remain in place while it considers the case. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. Daily Caller has the first spin with a Republican narrative. While America's southern border is being invaded by hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens every month, the Biden administration is more concerned with tearing down border security efforts and helping migrants sneak across the Rio Grande. Texas, however, has strong leadership that cares about state sovereignty and safety. State and federal governments not only have the right, but also the duty to implement any mechanism necessary to stop the invasion at the southern border, regardless of Joe Biden's open borders agenda. And Republican narratives are typically followed up by Democratic narratives. We have one here from the L.A. Times. Texas's razor wire border isn't about security. It's a political stunt aimed at inflicting the most suffering on migrants. Texas's policy is ineffective, and it has caused inhumane lacerations and injuries to migrants trying to seek a better life in the U.S. The cruelty of Republicans knows no bounds and federal agents have every right to cut down these barbaric fences that harm women and children, especially when medical emergencies are involved. The NHL reverses a ban on colored stick tape. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, ESPN, Associated Press, and CBS. The National Hockey League, or NHL, announced Tuesday that it has reversed its previous ban on using stick tape to express support for social causes, including LGBTQ issues. Players, quote, now have the option to voluntarily represent social causes with their stick tape throughout the season. The previous policy issued in June forbade teams from wearing, quote, specialty jerseys during warm-ups, practices, or games during nights that supported causes, including pride and military appreciation. 
The league then clarified at the beginning of October that on-ice player uniforms and gear worn in warm-ups, official team practices and games couldn't be altered to reflect specialty theme nights. Previously, Pride Nights became controversial after six players refused to wear the team's rainbow-colored jerseys last season. The tape ban drew criticism from players and executives, including longtime executive Brian Burke, Philadelphia Flyers player Scott Lawton, and Arizona player Travis Dermott, who defied the ban during a game over the weekend. The league's decision came after meetings with the NHL Players Association and its Player Inclusion Coalition. Thanks, Eric. Our left narrative spin for this story is going to be provided by LGBTQ Nation. The NHL should be applauded not just for allowing freedom of expression, but for breaking the age-old stigma around LGBTQ plus issues in society. Players shouldn't have to risk their careers for simply using rainbow tape. Thankfully, the league has come to its senses and put itself in the right side of history. Stand Up Republican gives us a right narrative. While the left attempts to portray this issue as the NHL imposing widespread censorship on its players, the truth is that the league has been caving to a minuscule group of activists. The league should keep politics and its extreme left causes out of sports. If its fan base is anything like the NFL's, the NHL should be ready for a backlash in response to its virtue signaling. Meta is being sued by U.S. states over mental health claims. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, Guardian, and CBS. 33 U.S. states have filed a lawsuit in federal court in California against Meta over accusations that the company has designed Facebook and Instagram features to, quote, ultimately ensnare youth and teens in pursuit of maximizing profit. The total number of states suing Meta rises to 41, plus Washington, D.C., when adding in nine attorneys general who are filing lawsuits in their states. The states say research about children's use of Meta's social media platforms shows a direct link between the platforms and, quote, depression, anxiety, insomnia, interference with education and daily life, and many other negative outcomes. Meta could face substantial civil penalties in addition to several other consequences. Meta responded in a statement expressing its disappointment over the suit and saying its goal is to provide teens with, quote, safe, positive experiences on the platforms. Adam, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from NPR Online News. Meta's deception, in light of its own research showing the addictive nature of its platforms for youth, is reminiscent of Big Tobacco's assault on public health and its harmful lying when faced with litigation in the 90s. Like the tobacco companies, hopefully Meta will be forced to pay restitution and develop ways to make their products safer. And our final spin of the day is a narrative B provided by Fortune Well. There have been mixed results in past lawsuits against Meta and other big tech firms. In the meantime, parents should be taking the initiative, speaking with their children about how social media makes them feel, limiting their screen time, and doing their best to monitor the type of content their kids are consuming. The tech giant has internal controls, but parenting is and should always be the first line of defense. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 26, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team 
extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.News. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.